You're listening to the Grass Matters podcast brought to you by Great Southern. I'm your host, Andrea Crothers. When David Ronalds got his start as a trainee cattle buyer in 1964, he remarked it was a joy to spend somebody else's money for a change. Turns out he was pretty good at it. 56 years on, he's bought millions of head of cattle. All this under just one employer, though the company has changed hands twice. In that time, David's gambled through market crashes, navigated price highs, and even whispered what he thought would be his last goodbyes as bushfires ripped through his property. Thanks for joining me, David. Pleasure. David, it's a pretty remarkable career, 56 years, but it's not actually one that your parents ever wanted you to pursue. Why is that? No, they, well, I was born on a dairy farm at the Jindabic, uh, in, in Warrigal, but the dairy farm was at Jindabic just outside Warrigal in Gippsland. And I mean, like those number of years ago, well, I was, um, I was expected to go home and just milk the cows and do that sort of thing, which I did for a few years. But um, when I was in my, uh, you know, 23 or 4, I got a bit sick of that and I thought I'd leave home, which uh, you weren't supposed to do in those days, you know. <laughs> and um, I went to Melbourne and... Uh, and visited uh, three um, meat companies, Anglers, Gilbertsons and Borthwicks and asked them all for a job. Uh, but I, I, before that, I knocked around in cattle yards a bit with a, with a big time cattle dealer called Les Marable and um, sort of became familiar with sale yards and uh, buying cattle. And I used, uh, traded a few cattle myself when I left home and I, I enjoyed it. So I thought, uh, I was at Sar Yards watching these fellows buy off these big meat cuttings. I thought I could do this. So I, uh, I eventually got, um, uh, Anglis didn't want anybody and Gilbertson didn't want anybody. And, and I met Colin Stedman, who was lifetime manager for Thomas Borthwick and Sons. And he was, he was in the, in the bullet pens in Newmarket smoking a pipe. And uh, I went up and introduced myself and he said, yes, he said, we do want somebody. Uh, trainee buyer and he said who do you know I said I know Les Marable pretty well I'll ring him up and uh, Cole said so he rang me up and Cole just, and um, Marable said yeah he'll be okay you put him on so that's how it all started pretty good referee having Les Marable till yeah, he was. yeah he's a very big time deal in those days yeah you're 25 it's 1964 tell me about that first day on the job yeah, well, the first day on the job, I had Borthwick killed a lot of sheep. We killed about, uh, in Melbourne, we killed uh, 8,100 sheep a day, 2,700 2, on, on three chains, each chain. And uh, in, the, in the springtime, when like from about uh, June or July on for three or four months, we killed about 10,000 bobby calves a week. You know, and uh, so my first job was buying bobby calves with um, under the supervision of a fellow called uh, Stutchbury in Warrigal. They actually lived in Warrigal. And they and, gave you the bobby calves because it's sort of like if you stuff well, up. Well, well, the trainee buyers couldn't waste too much money. They didn't cost very much. <laughs> so, so, Lucky you would have seen a few at your time on the dairy farm, though. Yeah, oh, yes. I, I, but I'd bought a few cattle before that, quite a lot of cattle, actually, for myself and did a bit of cattle trading, you know. So, um, but Keith Stutchbury wasn't a very well man and we got to the sale yards in Warragul and he said, I don't feel well, I'm, I'm crook. I said, you'll have to buy them today. So I, the first day I went, I bought about a thousand calves. You could, you could buy bobby calves, uh, big numbers in those days. There was no scales about like paddock scales like there has been later. So I sort of started, went on from there and I just did a couple of seasons buying them and then buying cattle and just went on from there. And the thrill of spending someone else's money. 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but Borthwick's were a great firm to work for. And so how did your career progress from there? Because you eventually got up to being able to be the big Bullock buyer. Yeah, it didn't only, only took me about a couple of years. And um, I attended Newmarket from the very first day or two, but, you know, actually buying Bobby Cars was my first job. But then I'd go, I'd went and lived in Melbourne for a while and spent a fair bit of time at the Abadors and in the burning room and things like that and um, and just learn about the whole job and then sort of progressed, I went progressed into buying the younger cattle in Newmarket and then about two or three years later, Borthwick's um, ex expanded their kill to about 700 a day and we got into the bully job, the, the chill beef to Japan eventually and I got the job of buying all the bullocks for it, you know. Is that when you felt like you'd made it? Being the bully bar in Newmarket was just, just the best. <laughs> because Newmarket, it's obviously long gone, but back then that was the, you know, the Rolls Royce of places to go, right? Oh, yeah. But Newmarket was huge. I think I'm right in saying that I think the biggest, the biggest week in cattle one year was 22,000 in a week. So, you know, they used to sell cattle, sell cattle two days a week, like young, younger cattle and then bullocks. And huge, huge store markets, huge. In in those days, there was a lot of people about, like quite a few, we called them punters or dealers in cattle, like they'd buy cattle in country sales and some in the paddock and send them into Newmarket and all the graziers from all over, Victorian, South Australian, Southern New South Wales, they'd come and buy the cattle. And, and uh, it was just a huge cattle sale and a lot of fun. <laughs> I bet you had a lot of fun. I can see a glint in your eye right now. <laughs> there was a lot of real characters about in the job, you know, and I became friendly with a few. And, and when I was buying the bullocks, one of my uh, one of my best auctioneer friends was a fellow called Del Bateman. He, he sold bullocks for Elders and Elders Goldsborough. And we used to go away after the bullock sale off and bullock sale would finish it that's one o'clock or something like that and we'd we'd go to the riverina buying cattle and i i wasn't i was i might have been in my late 20s and Dell was about 25 or 30 years older than me and he had he had a new Holden car and uh, we were going between deniliquin and hay we were going up to hay to buy bullocks off jewenbunk station which is on the junction of the lachlan the murrumbidgee river and Dell was fast asleep on the, on the passenger side seat and i was driving and I thought I'll see how fast this car can go. I had a flat to the boards and Dell woke up. He said, hey, Dave, he said, slow down. He said, the fence supposed to go and pass like a picket fence. <laughs> <laughs> and what we had, there was some real characters about it, like, you know, I don't know how much time I got, but I can tell you still about a few more. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> there was, um, in, in Newmarket, Jimmy Matthews was the auctioneer for Fisk and Reed. He was part owner of the company. And he was a really good auctioneer and he was selling all these pen of store cattle one day and he jammed a few too many in and he got shot with them. You know, that means he was no, no genuine bidder. Anyway, someone from the crowd yelled out, hey, Jimmy, he said, there's a there's a steer in there with a bit of brindle. And, and, he had, and Jimmy had a, a, a drove of Paddy Murphy, who was his driver, and Paddy Murphy yells out, even the Queen's got a bit of German, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there was just so many characters about him. We, we always had a, every day was a day of fun, you know. You didn't, you didn't want to miss the sale. And David, in the late 60s, when you were still, you know, in the early few years of your career, this was a time when you were traveling everywhere. You were going to Adelaide once a week, up to New South Wales, Alice Springs, even Tassie. As a young man, particularly in a time when there wasn't a hell of a lot of travel going on, this 
would have been an amazing experience. Oh, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, it was. You know, Alice Briggs, I bought cattle off. I bought 500 steers one day off the Hayes family. They owned um, a deep well station and a couple of other stages near Alice Springs. And we bought them per head and trucked them down to put them on the train to Port Augusta and then trucked them to, to truck kill them in Melbourne and some in Portland. I bought for Portland and Melbourne in those days. Yeah. All things like that we did. We used to buy a lot of cattle privately. You know, some bought some cattle on horseback and that sort of thing. You know. And there was a particular time with Tasmania when you managed to get quite a good deal, but not without a lot of hard work. One of the boats that used to bring the cattle across to Victoria, there wasn't many slaughterhouses in Tasmania and uh, this broke, this boat, the King Island trader, it uh, broke down and uh, they couldn't move their cattle. So John Poultryman was my manager then and, and we were friends too in Brooklyn. And he hired this boat in Tasmania called the Clara Clawson. And um, I went to Tassie, spent a few weeks in Tassie on and off, flying back to Melbourne and so on. And uh, we bought about half a dozen loads of cattle and sheep and brought them across to Melbourne. It was a great experience. Stayed in the in the hotel in Launceston and worked from there for a while. What was it like being able to do all of these experiences? Because I'm sure, because you were one of eight children and I'm not sure your siblings would have been exactly living the sort of life you were. No, no, they weren't. No, no, they were home. No, home on the farm and mostly do, most of them lived on, on the farm or did different jobs there, you know. And then. Was there a bit of jealousy there? Oh, I didn't know whether there was or not, but uh, I, I was happy I left home and got this job. It was just the best, best one of the best decisions of my life. Now, now that you talk about the best decisions of your life, one of those other ones was, of course, when you started dating Carol. <laughs> That's right. She was working at a cafe, the Blue Orchid Cafe. What was it that first attracted you to her? We just got on well, well, you know, and that. But it took a lot of years. I mean, I didn't get married until I was about twenty-nine, and just got on well. Go on, take us back to that first day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can remember the first day. I mean, you know, when she was only young, of course, and we just became friends. And I met a few other girls, but she was the best. So, Lucky, because you kept her around. <laughs> she thought I was never going to ask her to marry me. You know, I think she nearly gave up on me, I think, because I was having such a lot of fun travelling around the countryside. I, I wasn't ready to settle down for a fair while. Well, I mean, it took you seven years to drop on one knee. I think uh, you're lucky she did <laughs> hang around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know why she did, really, but it's good she did. You know, I can admit it, because since then we've had six children, including triplets. You know, we had two boys and a girl all at once, and... Uh, now we've got 17 grandchildren now. 17, that's pretty good, um, pretty good achievement. How yeah. did Carol go as you were travelling around all this time, particularly after you two had kids? Oh, well, she had a fair bit to put up with. I mean, I was away from home quite a lot, quite a lot of nights away from home, obviously. you know, I used to, in, in the wintertime, I'd um, fly, fly to Adelaide in an old Viscount plane and stay the night and, and then buy cattle next day at, Gips Cross Abadors and tra- truck them to Portland and Melbourne and and then fly home fairly late Monday night, you know. But yeah, she looked after all the kids, did a great job. And when you got home, because from what I gather, you're quite a, an ambitious person. There's there's a clear reason why you got to where you did. Was it always talking about shop or were you able to switch off and just enjoy the time with her and the kids? <laughs> Well, we enjoyed the time with kids, but I mean, I never switched switched up from shop really. I mean, the, I, in those days, 
didn't have mobile phones till about the mid 1990s and I had two phones at home and one was a silent number that I used to ring out on and because I used to buy quite a lot of cattle privately you know over the over the hooks we called them you know and weight and grade and that sort of thing and I was sort of pretty much I was available really seven days a week really and did Carol enjoy it as much as you did oh well I don't know about enjoying it as much she sort of put up with it really I think (laughs) (laughs) but we we've had We've been married now for over 50 years and still married, so it's not too bad, is it? You know? And what's the secret? I suppose just share things, you know, and put up with each other. But, like, she's easy to put up with my wife, you know. She's a good, good girl, you know. Mate, <laughs> <laughs> it does make me laugh because one of the first questions you asked me yesterday when we had a quick chat was, um, are you married? So I thought, righto, <laughs> David's either sorting me out here or about to impart some good advice. <laughs> well, I just want—I just want to learn something about you because I've never met you. So I just want to learn something about you. <laughs> no, it's fair. You've had a lot of highs in your career, David, but I do want to go back to some of those particularly more challenging times. You've had bushfires tear through your properties not once but twice. The first, of course, being uh, the Ash Wednesday bushfires in 1983. Take me back to that day. Yeah, well, we, we live on 86 acres, just a Beaconsfield near Berwick, not far from Pakenham, you know, east of Melbourne. Yeah, and uh, we we got a few cattle here, about 50, 60 cattle we run, and uh, the fire the fire came uh, the fire came from the west. Uh, I was actually in Newmarket the day it came, and uh, Carol rang me up and said the fire's coming, so I uh, got in the car to come home and. Um, uh, see what I could do. It was in the afternoon, and uh, the police stopped me at the at the hotel there at near Bergensfield and said you can't go through. So I just went round the hotel and went home anyway. And uh, Paul, Paul, my he's my eldest boy. He was about twelve at the time. So I I got him to you could ride a horse. I got him to yard the cattle that we had at home and put him in the yard because you know, otherwise I could get burned. And the fire swept through and we sort of saved the house, but it burnt the property and, and the sheds and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and, so you uh, raced time from Newmarket? Yeah, it took, took, me about, it takes a bit, took me about an hour, an hour and a half to get home. And and the time I got there, the fire was just sort of arriving somewhere near the same time. You know, I was coming from the west. We, we knew it was coming. It came from, you know, Belgrave area, which is which is east of Melbourne too. The police helicopter come over telling us to move, but we, but we didn't move. We stopped there and everything turned out all right. The next time was uh, the Black Saturday bushfires in 2009, which of course anyone in Victoria knows were just absolutely devastating the number of lives. Well, that, see, my, my first country I had was a was near Jindavik, uh, where, I, where our dairy farm was and not far away, uh, for a few, few kilometres away, uh, my brother and I had bought 500 acres of bush. When I was about 16 to 17, we, we cleared all that bush up, and that's where, that's where this, this fire hit. We had cattle there, and it happened to hit on a Saturday, of course, when I was home, and, um, and we went up there and had to suffer all that, and we fought the fire and sort of saved everything. We, again, we yarded the cattle, and, but it burnt the whole. I had about 450 acres there, we burnt it all out, and, we had to shift our cattle to some other properties. By this time, I had a couple of other properties as well, you know, nearby. And so on this particular property, you had Jason there, your son-in-law, Dan. He took shelter in a dam? Yeah, the son-in-law's name was Dan, and Jason's my boy. 
Yeah, yeah Dan took shelter in the dam and the fire passed by. And But J Jason was, um, he was there too at the same property. And he, he sort of stopped there and um, we had a tractor there. And I remember he drove this tractor around over the burnt ground, so it was getting burned and, you know, it was a bit of a harrowing day. The fire took probably took half a day to sort of burn out, burn out if you like, and pass on. So you ran up to George's brick home. Take me back to that moment that you're both there as the fire comes across. It would have been terrifying. Him, George and I owned half this property on Aggies each, and by this stage he'd built a house there and he was married and milking, milking cows there and that. And Yeah, we, we sheltered in his house, him and I and three or four other people, and the fire came up the road and um, his garage was just a just a, not not attached to the house, but right nearby. Well, that caught a light and the car burned up in there and there was a gas tank that he used for the gas for the house. It blew up and <laughs> it was pretty hairy. Anyway, the, the next day, the next day, um, he's had a bit of trouble with his power. And so they got an electrician out and had a look and, and, and the wire, the electrical wires in the roof had melted. And uh, it was amazing how the house didn't blow up really. As you were sitting there in the house and you heard the big explosion, did you think this is it? I said, we better get out of here. So we got, we got out of the house and went down to the old dairy where, where it was a gravel and so, you know, a yard where the dairy and we sort of survived the house, survived the fire there, then went back to the house and it was still standing amazingly. You know? And how long was it before that you realised that everyone else was okay? We had mobile phones in, but the mobile phones wouldn't work. So we had, Jason, my boy, and Dan, my son-in-law, know another farm just down the road. We didn't find out for quite some time, two or three hours. You must have been pretty worried. Mm, yeah, we was, was very worried, yeah. Anyway, it all turned out all right. Particularly because this was the first, um, that the, the property at Jindabig, the 500 acres, that was the first block you and your brother developed um, as just teenagers, as you sort of got your start in your own way in life. What was it like then seeing fire sort of tear up your good work oh it, yes it's a, it's it's quite an emotional experience really we started clearing that land in about uh, 1957 or 8 and we're talking all those years later and we put a lot of time and money and effort into it of course and yeah it, it, it's quite emotional really but i mean we were well off to a lot of people i mean a lot of people died elsewhere in the state so we, we survived pretty well really the thing about bushfires, I mean, drought is obviously such a long, painful, agonising disaster, but then you've got bushfires that just come with impact in such a way that just easily pulls up so much fear in people and you can completely understand why. I mean, even looking at the ones at the start of this year up in the um, East Gippsland. You sort of, you, you nearly have to go through it to actually experience what it's really like. But, I mean, as I said, we... We survived it very luckily and very well, really, considering what some people, I mean, lots and lots of people, some of my friends died, you know. In the first bushfire here, at where we live at Beaconsfield, in um, 83, well, one of our neighbours got burned to death. I mean, it, it, it's very severe, really. Not a mm. nice way to go, that's for sure. No, it's not. I want to move back on to your career in the industry. So you got your start with Borthwick's, 1988, that was bought out by Australian Meat Holdings and then 2007, JBS took the reins. Yeah. You've stood the test of time. When each company bought the other one out, they, uh, 
they just asked me would I stay on and I said yeah I'll be pleased to stay on so I mean I've actually never changed myself just changed work for different names if you like <laughs> surely you got approached by other companies going we'll take him over I don't know what's gonna happen now I think this will certainly be the last one I think <laughs> <laughs> but David did you ever consider moving on to another company at all no I'm not I won't now I'm, I'm no, not now, but throughout that time. I, mean. I was offered other jobs, yeah. I was offered other jobs when I was with Borswick. But Borswick, I, like, money or finance didn't come into it. I mean, they, they were so good to me and gave me my first opportunity in life. I, I, was, I wasn't interested in leaving them. But they were very, very good. They looked after me very well. And, you know, we had, financially, we had expense sheets, which, you know, we could use. And in uh, 1980, they gave me a trip to America and, back and I stayed with John Paltman who was an American manager in those days and that but they were very generous towards me you know I can remember another rather funny story one of our buyers in Queensland put in his expense sheets one day and he put on the bottom he put in the expense sheets a pair of R.M. Williams boots <laughs> which, which today cost 500 and something dollars and anyway, his, his lifetime manager crossed them off. He said, we're not going to buy R.M. We boot to travel around the Sayards. The next month, he sent in his expense sheet and he put on a note on the bottom, the, the boots are here, find them if you can. <laughs> but that's, more things were just, they were just a very good company. But they've all been good to me. AMH were great. Um, John Keir was a CR and we're still friends. And JBS have been good to me. They've all been good to me. You better name drop Steve Chapman. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Steve, Steve and I, Steve's supposed to be my boss, but, you know, we, we're more like mates or friends than a boss, if you like, you know what I mean? You know, Why does he call you the old fox? Oh, i got no idea. You should ask him. I mean, I mean, I got the old part, if I can be as cheeky as to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you can. Yeah. Well, foxes are supposed to be cunning, aren't they? So I don't know whether that's the reason. But he, he's the one who sort of started that term. And it's stuck. It's stuck, yes, yes. Still, that's what he, that's what he called me today. He called me a fox, and he re- he reckons I live on fox soup. What's fox soup? Fox soup. Well, made out of foxes. You know, soup, oh, soup made I'm sorry. Of How silly of me not to just instantly know that. <laughs> that's why I'm so cunning. He says. You know? oh, <laughs> there you go. When you look at now, and you know, we're not loyal to our jobs. My generation certainly isn't. What do you think when you see people switching between companies all the time? If you're happy in your job, why would you change? And I, I, I was doing, I was doing what I loved doing. Like to me, it, it, it really wasn't, it wasn't work. It's just what I enjoyed doing. So I had no reason to change. You know, and every company's been good to me. So, have I, you got a retirement date in mind? Oh, I've got a retirement date. I'll just, uh, I, I'll just go to my visit my farms and my grandchildren and that sort of thing. You know? We're going to hit 60 years or? Oh, well, uh, next year I'm definitely going to slow down. I've, I've, had a, I've got a, a new right hip and a, and a new left knee. So, I mean, but they've both been very successful operations. But I, when you get to my age with a you know, hip and a knee replacement, you are a bit limited. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you've still got your sense of humour. Yeah. How have you seen the industry evolve or what's perhaps been the biggest thing that's maybe surprised you or that you've, you know, just been the biggest change for you? Well, there's probably several fairly major changes, particularly in the way we buy cattle. I mean, when I started in 1964, we bought, I bought cattle in pounds, shillings and pence at auction per head, pounds, shillings and pence. Uh, no weights. There was no tail tags, no electric 
electric conic, you know, no ear tags and um, electronic ear tags, and that sort of thing. And and um, it wasn't until um, oh, quite some years later, then live weight selling came in, and we we bid for them in in uh, in 1966, I think decimal currency came. So that was a change. And then and then when live weight selling came in after that, and we bid for them in in cents per kilogram live weight. And then we had tail tags and which didn't stick on much good. And and then there's the modern electronic identification of cattle arrived. They were quite big changes, you know, and, and like changes for the better too. And then of course, I mean, the way I was around when they invent, we invented uh, you know, packaging of, of, of the product all changed when we had, you know, packaging in, uh, in plastic bags and all this sort of thing, you know, and there's been such a number of changes really. And, and uh, particularly also in the way cattle are now identified when they're slaughtered and overseas companies like can actually track where that bit of meat came from. It's just quite amazing really what's happened. But it's all happened for the best, I think, you know. Did you ever think it would turn that way? Oh, you didn't think about it. No, no, you but I mean, I think there'll be more changes still. You know, no, you wouldn't. I, you didn't. I never thought it'd be all like this. I mean, it, it just sort of, it just sort of happens along. You know, like each each a new step, and uh, just get used to it. You know, and then of course in the mid 1990s, I had to learn to use a computer. It was all computerised. Uh, AMH were all computerised, and we, I had to go to Brisbane and live in a hotel for in a motel for a couple of days, and. Learned, learned how to use a computer with a few of the other buyers and it was quite a good experience, really. And the computer was probably the size of a TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. And, and the first mobile phones, well, there's only just like a small brick. You know? And that, that happened in the 1990s. And, and you can, we can all see how it's progressed so quickly since then. What do you make of the way selling centres have changed, the move to online? Yeah, well, that, see, that's another major move. You know, it's it's, it's quite a major, and I think it's probably here to stay. Of course, it's here to stay, and it's going to get bigger. I think. I mean, I think sale yards will never see anything like the numbers that we saw years ago. It, it's all so. Well, I think they'll be around for a lot of years, particularly on store sales. But I think the majority, even now, the majority of our of our prime cattle are all bought over the hooks, waiting, waiting, grade. You know. And I mean, that'll certainly continue and we'll get an even bigger percentage of our, I think before long, most of the protesters, the biggest, bigger, bigger percentage of our cattle will be bought on weight and grade, I'm sure. David, you've had an incredible career. When you do eventually hang up your hat, how would you like to be remembered? I hope I'm remembered reasonably well, you know. <laughs> I just want to remember something who did did the job the best they could. I suppose that's probably at all, which, which I think I probably pretty much achieved. But I mean, made a few mistakes in life, but not too bad. You know. <laughs> that's pretty good of you. Finally, before we go, just say you get one last supper. What would you eat? What would, <laughs> what would I eat? I'd probably eat a nice steak. Good on you. With mushroom sauce. Mushroom sauce, nice. I've had a couple of favourite restaurants in my day. One was Vlado's in Bridge Road, Richmond. Another one was the Olive Tree in Park Street, South Melbourne. And that's where I'd always eat. It was, I've had some really good meals a lot of those times with a, few, with a few of my clients and friends and so on. 
And how do you have your steak? Oh, I had a medium cooked with medium cooked with mushroom sauce, what I really like. Good eye. Thank you so much for talking to me, David. That's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Grass Fighters podcast. Remember, this drops every Thursday at 2 p.m., so make sure you pop it in your calendar. And if you do like what you're listening to, you, of course, can leave us a review because it really does help.